From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Early fall and a fire rages near Salida. We get the latest. Then peace and quiet are hard to find, even in national parks. It really is shocking how many planes are in the sky. So the number of places that you can go and just listen to the sounds of nature for more than 10 or 15 minutes at a time, it's really rare to be able to find that. Colorado could be home to the country's first quiet park. Later, what one street in Denver reveals about growth and gentrification. If you dump a bunch of money into an area, it's going to affect the surrounding areas, which in this case are Elyria Swansea, Globeville, Five Points. Plus, a bolder photographer on what goes into the ESPN body issue. We are inherently beautiful, just as we are. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The Decker Fire rages in the Sangre de Cristo wilderness near Salida. The blaze now covers nearly 4,000 acres. It has damaged radio towers and threatens homes. Chafee County has declared a disaster emergency. The Mountain Mail is keeping folks there in the loop. Editor and publisher Merle Baranchek is on the phone with us. Hi, Merle. Good morning. Thanks for taking the time to speak with us. Uh, this fire, interestingly, started almost a month ago. So uh, how did it start? And naturally, how did it spread? started with a lightning strike over in the Decker Creek drainage of the Sangre de Cristo wilderness area. And it spread rather slowly, day by day. But because it was in the wilderness area... There was difficulty attacking the fire and putting it out, so the fire crews on hand let it burn in large part because it couldn't be attacked aggressively and crews could not get in there because of the terrain. Did they think that it wouldn't eventually wind up threatening uh, people and places? They were keeping a close watch on it, and they actually said yesterday that the fire is now in a place where they can attack it aggressively. And that means, first of all, with both air and ground, hand crews and air support, tankers and so forth. All right. What is the nature of the threat? I know there have been evacuations. Help paint us a picture of how this is affecting people's lives in and around Salida. Well, fire, as I said, grew slowly. And Tuesday night, however, it blew up. There are homes that are probably within a mile or so of the fire right now. And the fire is about two miles from the city itself. How many evacuated at this point, and are there shelters open? There were about 110 people that were evacuated. I should say 110 homes. And there's a, there is a shelter at the Methodist Church here in town, and uh, the Red Cross is on hand to provide services. How are weather conditions contributing to this blaze, and, and as you described, the, the blowing up earlier this week? The weather is a major factor. You don't think about October being normal fire weather, but it's been dry here, so that's the first factor. The second is that it's been sunny, and we've had low humidity. And the combination of sunny skies, dry weather, low humidity, and then really significant winds, 20 to 30 miles an hour sustained with gusts of 40 and on up to 60 miles an hour, that combination has really made this a hot fire and dangerous. The other thing that's involved here is forecast is for two weeks of similar weather. There's no rain in the forecast Mm -hmm. 
for a couple of weeks yet. So this could be a long-term burn, to say the least. I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, How long do they think it might take to contain at the very least? When the fire started, and it was in the wilderness area, their comment was, when the snow flies. I think the fire around town, Mm -hmm. that fire will be attacked aggressively, and it is being attacked right now, actually. What stories are you hearing from Salidans about how this is affecting them? And perhaps how is it affecting you, Merle? I know you live in the community. We live just across the street from the evacuation area. I think the fire has affected a lot of people in town. First of all, you have the smoke, of course, that comes in, wafts through. And I have to say, the people in western Fremont County, which is just east of Salida, have had the worst of it because that's where the westerly winds have pushed the smoke It's a small town, though, and a lot of people know someone who lives in the area who was evacuated. They might be related to them or they work with them. People all have been affected by the fire in one way or another. Can you think of a fire like this coming this close to Salida in recent memory? We had a fire three years ago, the Hayden Pass fire, and that was about 15, 18 miles from Salida. Salida has been really fortunate in not having a fire, any type of major fire. We had grass fires and things like that, but this is the first fire in years and years and years. Merle, thanks for taking time to share your coverage with us. You're welcome. Glad to. Merle Branchek edits and publishes the Mountain Mail in Chafee County, where the Decker Fire rages. The county has declared a disaster emergency, putting it in line for state and federal assistance. An air quality advisory has been extended through Friday morning in the area. Three other wildfires are burning in Colorado, two in the northwest part of the state and one near Aspen. The Great Sand Dunes in southern Colorado may become the country's first quiet park. What does that designation really mean, though? We're going to ask Matt Mickelson of Quiet Parks International. Matt, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. I understand this is a relatively new idea. There's only one park in the world right now with this designation. Let's transport listeners there. Where is it and what makes it quiet? Yeah, the world's first wilderness quiet park is uh, on the Zabalo River in the Ecuadorian Amazon. And while I've never personally been, I've uh, spoken to many people who have gone and listened to the place. And it's probably one of the most wild and untouched places left on the face of the earth. And the point isn't that it's quiet necessarily, because nature can be noisy, but that it's probably quiet of some things. Does that make sense? When we're doing our certifications for wilderness quiet parks, what we're looking at really is the amount of noise pollution in that area. And that's relevant because there are so few places left on planet Earth that are unaffected by noise pollution. But you're right, nature can be very loud at times. The point is actually to be able to hear the Zabola River, for instance, and all the critters that thrive in and along it. All right, what do you find are the primary sources of noise pollution? Let's be more precise about that. 
Yeah, all you have to do to kind of get a grasp on how noisy the world is, is look at a real-time air traffic map of all the planes, even just in your area. It really is shocking how many planes are in the sky. So the number of places that you can go and just listen to the sounds of nature for more than 10 or 15 minutes at a time, um, it's really rare to be able to find that. And what we're trying to do at Quiet Parks International is not only find those places, but certify them and work to protect them. Well, I'm curious to try this for myself. I've gone to flightradar24.com, zooming in on Centennial, Colorado, where our studios are. And I can count 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. Just in the air above me, that doesn't count the cluster around DIA right now. Is it that the sand dunes then are just like not located in heavy air traffic? Or to get this designation, would you be telling air traffic to do something different? In an ideal world, we would be able to work with the FAA to have planes fly around our national parks, but it's a little bit unrealistic. So what we're trying to do is find places that are not on uh, heavily trafficked flight patterns, or at least experience a reliable dose of natural silence between one hour before sunrise or two hours after sunrise. Hmm. Okay. And sand dunes met those criteria. Is that it? What about, you know, boom boxes and cell phones? I, I don't know if anyone has a boom box anymore, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, road noise is also a really big factor. So kind of the three big sources of noise pollution are definitely air traffic, different types of resource extraction, you know, like if you have a mine nearby or some sort of oil drilling, and then also road noise. And Great Sand Dunes is kind of a perfect combination of a place that doesn't have a lot of roads. There's no interstate nearby, and the roads that it's near are very far away. And it's also not on a main flight path for the most part. That being said, during the day, there are overflights, of course, um, probably every 10 minutes or so. And then there's also no resource extraction happening in the immediate vicinity. So all those kind of three ingredients make this perfect storm of just beautiful, beautiful quiet. So it strikes me that much of what would make the sand dunes, this quiet park, is kind of beyond the control of the average citizen. It's a bit of a perfect scenario. Yeah, in a lot of ways, um, the places that, like, we're losing the ability to listen to nature without noise pollution all over the world. And Gordon Hempton, the founder of Quiet Parks International, kind of realized this many years ago and started working to try and identify these places. Um, and now we're working to try and preserve them because there's so few left. Um, and Great Sand Dunes is, you know, without a doubt, one of the quieter places that we have left in our public land system in the United States and definitely in Colorado. Okay, well, the word preserve seems really important here. If there is the perfect scenario that keeps the sand dunes quiet, how do you work to preserve that? A lot of the um, preservation tactics that we use are about motivating local community members to take part in a conversation. Um, and that could be as simple as, you know, kind of being more involved with a bill or plan to provide resource extraction to private companies in the area, as well as doing things like building an interstate through the valley or something like that. Now, noise pollution in parks does more than just disrupt peace and quiet for visitors. Uh, as we have learned on this program, it can affect animals, mating and migration habits, and more. I want to play this from conservation biologist Rachel Buxton, who led a groundbreaking study for Colorado State University. This can really mean the difference between life and death. Think of a, a fox that's searching for a mouse under layers of snow. 
if the fox can no longer hear its mouse prey, that could mean the difference between getting a meal or not. And for the mouse, if it can't hear the fox coming, that could mean the difference between becoming a meal or not. Any other examples that you'd cite, Matt? Mammals experience issues when they're subjected to noise pollution, but also there's lots of examples of birds. For example, owls have the same issue that that fox has, um, where owls primarily hunt using their hearing, and they can hear for vast distances. But as soon as a little bit of noise pollution is introduced into their environment, owls have to spend a lot more energy flying around so that way they can hear potential prey. Well, what separates the sand dunes from becoming a quiet park? What's the road ahead here? Essentially, it's pre-qualified to be a wilderness quiet park, which means that I went, I took sound level readings, I took copious notes. Now, um, in a few months' time, hopefully early 2020, myself and a team of people from Quiet Parks International will go for about a week and we'll deploy different types of acoustical measuring equipment and work with park staff. And hopefully that'll result in in the actual certification of uh, Great Sand Dunes as a quiet park. You're walking around sand dunes with like a big fuzzy microphone or what? (laughs) That's a pretty accurate depiction of what we do. Um, For this certification process, what we'll do is uh, most likely set up stationary equipment throughout the park. And that equipment will be monitoring at specific time frames uh, throughout the day and throughout the week. And then we take all that equipment back into a lab and analyze it and then figure out, okay, well, how many planes did pass over or what is the noise-free interval on average? And if the data comes back that maybe the dunes are noisier than you thought they were, uh, would there be suggestions you might make to the people running the park to change that? Absolutely. Matt, does this designation mean less fun, less freedom for visitors? No, if anything, I think this designation means more fun, more freedom. When you're in a national park, you always want to take into consideration the ways that other people enjoy a natural place. I know lots of people who like playing their music as they're hiking down the trails, but maybe that's impacting the experience of another visitor to the park. So I think we all just kind of need to be conscious of how we enjoy these places and places that are naturally silent deserve that kind of extra consideration to make sure that we're preserving them and all of their resources in its entirety. Okay, so I shouldn't be picturing the librarian shushing me? (laughs) If anyone's going to be the librarian, it would be me, but I promise not to shush you. Matt, thanks for being with us. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Matt Mickelson of Quiet Parks International which is sizing up the Great Sand Dunes for the country's first quiet park designation. It used to be an industrial area. Now there are sidewalks, bikeways, a traffic signal just for pedestrians. Oh, plus trendy restaurants, a sparkling new music venue, and tons of apartments. I'm talking about Denver's River North District. This is along Brighton Boulevard. It's the first street in the city to get this kind of 360-degree focus. Denverite under editor Ashley Dean is reporting on this thoroughfare as a way to tell a bigger story about gentrification, the environment, homelessness, 
and Transportation. Ashley, welcome to the program. Hey, Ryan. Thanks. Who, who knew that one street could say so much? Yeah, not me. Not you. Well, you did know, and that's, I, yeah. that's why you're pursuing this. Yes. In one of your stories about Brighton Boulevard, you say that it feels less like Fury Road now that it's undergone a massive $32 million reconstruction project. Uh, in fact, this area was nearly declared blighted at one point. Tell me about what they did to change the area. Yeah. Brighton used to have sort of a dearth of sidewalks, um, and some Denverites have been pretty thrilled uh, that they can finally walk on Brighton physically separated from oncoming traffic and vehicles, which is nice. Portions of that sidewalk are still, they're not really wide enough. It's difficult to walk three abreast uh, or pass somebody. You know, still the city's premier pedestrian advocacy group says that the new Brighton Boulevard is just eons better. They're seeing it as a model for other scary arterial streets like Federal. Fury Road was uh, Dave Sachs's designation, and I loved it because it actually was quite dangerous. This um, is your colleague at Denver, right? Yes. One thing we learned uh, reporting the story that, according to city data, um, between 2016 and 2018, drivers killed one bicyclist and seriously injured three people, one cyclist, two motorcyclists, um, on that section of Brighton. But since reconstruction, nobody's been hurt. Ah, okay. So this has a life-saving effect. Yeah. Your team's Reporting found that Brighton Boulevard is really a microcosm for much larger issues in Denver and, frankly, for other cities handling growth. Yeah. Gentrification is the big one, um, which we can get more into. But, you know, as as we said, transportation, um, we are seeing issues with housing being worked out on Brighton, um, homelessness as well. And also artist displacement and displacement of industry and warehouses and people who work with their hands, things like that, are all being pushed out. I mean, it's so often that artists are on the bleeding edge of a cool neighborhood, and then Mm -hmm. that neighborhood gets so expensive they're pushed out. I gather that's what you're talking about. Before the development boom, there were just 80 homes in the area that seemed so quaint Developers have said they're not gentrifying because there were hardly any people to push out in the first place. Is is it that cut and dry? Um, as with many things relating to Denver's growth, no, it's not. You know, first of all, we have to remember that there were other people there, artists specifically, as you mentioned, living in warehouses on and around Brighton. So as that land becomes valuable and the warehouses go away, so does that space that they were using. Um, DIY music and art space, Rhinoceropolis, for example, is threatened by the encroaching Catalyst Health Tech Campus. You see it, the big hulking building. Catalyst bought that entire block. What we see there now is phase one, but someday phase two will come, and that will squash the warehouse that Rhinoceropolis and its sister space glob are in. So there's that pretty obvious and easy to see. Displacement. Displacement. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. Um, And not in one of those 80 homes, but people did live there. So the other thing about gentrification, too, is that it's not happening in a bubble, right? If you dump a bunch of money into an area, it's going to affect the surrounding areas, which in this case are Elyria Swansea, Globeville, Five Points. Um, This is not just 80 homes because of the ripple effects. Yes, exactly. You're affecting people who live nearby as well. It's not just about housing costs, right? Um, If it gets too expensive to grocery shop in your neighborhood, to get coffee, um, whatever else you are trying to do near your home, uh, you might have to leave. Or if the nature of businesses in your neighborhood changes in such a way that you can no longer find employment within miles of your home, you may decide that you need to leave. Older businesses are being pushed out and new business is coming in. I think of Zeppelin development, you know, restaurants and bars and stores, uh, the face of which is Kyle Zeppelin, the developer. And I wonder about the influence developers have on city planners. 
So one thing that I embarrassingly did not know before we started this project is that Brighton was nearly declared blighted in 2015. Um, And the point of declaring an area blighted is to then be able to create an urban renewal area, which opens up avenues for financing for development. And so Brighton met a lot of the criteria to be declared blighted. But what happened is the Denver Urban Renewal Authority took a look around and decided, well, there's already cranes everywhere. Development's already happening. So we don't need to push it along. Mm. And among the early projects that popped up without the blight designation was Zeppelin's The Source. The Zeppelins saw this area as an opportunity essentially long before other developers did, or at least they were the first people to kind of stake their claim on it. And so you could say that they're responsible for sparking that development boom, which in turn led to a ton of city energy and money being focused on infrastructure improvements there. So that's a pretty big force within the city from one development company. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and I'm speaking with Denverite's Ashley Dean about how one street in the city is emblematic of huge issues that face many cities. Uh, let's talk about the future of Brighton Boulevard because it's not fully realized. I know that the Denverite team spoke with Bernard Hurley, who owns an environmental cleanup firm with offices in this neighborhood. He mentors former prisoners like himself, and he has grand plans for the area. What are they? The imagined $250 million two-block development has 12-story buildings, um, about 200 homes, a hotel, three music venues. Three? Yeah. (laughs) And 12 acres of park space uh, that will complement the rejuvenation, hopefully, of the South Platte River. And eventually it will be the Rhino Promenade uh, waterfront park right there as well. So Bernard Hurley is really a character, and he kind of seems to parallel a lot of things about Brighton Boulevard. Uh, He used to hang out with biker gangs, even went to federal prison on drug charges for 10 years. So this is a guy whose arms are fully tattooed and his fingers are covered with skull jewelry. After he was released from prison in the 90s, he bought property on the corridor for pretty cheap. And to us, he really epitomizes the idea of transformation. Yeah, I have to say he also epitomizes to me the regret I have not buying something yeah. in Rhino mm-hmm. when it was dirt cheap. Okay. We all dropped the ball. Yeah, Bernard, <laughs> except Bernard Hurley. Yep. Uh, Ashley, you mentioned the river, the South Platte River, which, how do I say this delicately, still feels a bit gross <laughs> to me. Uh, we've had questions actually about whether it's even safe to fish out of the South Platte. How would a riverside development fare if the river is kind of murky? The river pretty much gets stinkier and more contaminated the closer you get to Commerce City. So how do you build a development where that's the centerpiece? Um, It smells. There's E. coli. But it is something the city's trying to fix, and I'm interested to see what solutions they have. Thanks, Ashley. Thank you. Ashley Dean is editor of Denverite, part of Colorado Public Radio. Her team is focusing on developments along Brighton Boulevard. And this afternoon, they'll be at The Source talking to people about the project. Tomorrow evening, they host a happy hour at Will Call, which is another chance for your input. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with a conversation about body shaming in the context of ESPN's recent body issue. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News. You can find CBD just about everywhere these days. Coffee shops, gas stations, vitamin stores... 
It's derived from cannabis, but it doesn't actually get you high. That's one of its main strengths, according to journalist Martin Lee. One of the criticisms of the medical marijuana phenomenon is, oh, this is just an excuse for people getting high. But once CBD is part of the mix, you can't use that criticism anymore. CBD on the latest episode of On Something. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. How we live our lives helps shape our bodies. That's one of the messages behind the body issue, which ESPN has released for more than a decade. This year, world-class, world-class athletes, again, posed nude or semi-nude for the issue. And notably, this was the last print version of ESPN, the magazine. Among the naked athletes this year is rock climber Alex Honnold. He's the first person to free solo climb El Capitan in Yosemite. Corey Richards of Boulder photographed him. Richards, an accomplished mountaineer in his own right, joins my colleague Avery Lill. These nude and semi-nude photos of Alex Honnold and other athletes in the project, they really aren't sexualized. What goes into capturing nude photos that emphasize athleticism? Well, I think that's, you're driving at basically the biggest question here and why it's a risk for people to... Uh, to celebrate nude photography in general, because in general, uh, our culture especially tends to sexualize the naked body. So we see somebody naked and we, you know, automatically, whether intentionally or not, we, we put it in a sexual context. And um, what's so, I think, important about the, the body issue for ESPN, and certainly as a photographer participating in it, is that we avoid that at all costs. So, for, you know, because, because the body isn't necessarily, and in fact, very rarely, is a sexual object. Um, more often, it is a utilitarian object. It is, it is something that we use day in, day out uh, to accomplish all the things that we do on a daily basis to survive, to live, and certainly to love. So, you know, it's, we tend to put too much emphasis on one tiny part of it. And so, you know, photographing that, you, at least I, uh, coming from a climbing background, wanted to really... Um, sort of look at the function of Alex's body primarily. And so, and what movements, what motions, what postures, what positions we could put him in that would both, uh, you know, have some degree of modesty, but also celebrate the athleticism that he, of course, has become known for. And I have to think that these photo shoots, they're really vulnerable. And Alex actually talked about it in the ESPN video that accompanies the photos. As a child, I was so shy that I couldn't speak in the class. I couldn't, you know, stand in front of a group. You know, I couldn't public, like do public speaking at all. And then the idea of being able to like stand basically nude in front of a bunch of folks and just kind of hang out, you're sort of like, huh. It's like a rite of passage, you know, it's like I just entered manhood. <laughs> like, I just arrived. So what kind of conversations did you have with Alex before and during the shoot to make sure this space felt safe and comfortable? Well, I think it's important for people to know that Alex and I have an established relationship. We've been friends for a long time. A lot of the athletes and photographers don't have that luxury. And certainly I would try to create the same sort of safe space with any athlete if I didn't have a, you know, a pre-existing relationship with them. 
But for Alex and I, because we do have that that history, it was pretty easy for us to sort of settle into into a rapport where it sort of transcends the nudity aspect of it. And all I tried to do was ask him to do things that didn't expose him overtly. And I also, we worked hard to keep the set and the crew to a minimum. I called him a few times before and I said, look, I want to, you know, I have some concepts here and they could get a little weird in terms of what I might have you do. But I promise it's, you know, it's a celebration of you and it's, I'm not trying to um, put you in a vulnerable situation that could reflect poorly on you. So we had talked through that, but he does trust me and I trust him. And so um, I think really, I, you know, just being honest with each other and, and certainly for me to say, hey, look, this is what I want to do. Honestly, this is what I'm trying to create. I think that sets people, uh, anybody who's being photographed, at ease. Tell me a little bit about some of the weirder concepts, because composition seems really important in these, and they seem very planned. Yeah, so what Alex achieved, you know, he free soloed or climbed without ropes, El Cap or El Capitan in, in Yosemite, and, and that, that accomplishment seems rather inhuman to a lot of people. I mean, it's almost overt and it's and it's unrelatable and because of that I really wanted to celebrate that which was relatable about Alex so as much as it was a celebration about his body I also wanted it to be a celebration of his humanity and and the fact that you know while he's been able to accomplish certain things uh, that seem inhuman to us he is still very much human so there was a vulnerability aspect of that and I also so I wanted to play to that softer side um, but also there was an element of kind of birth that, that I played to in this. I wanted to at least explore the ideas of Alex being born from, not, not literally, but figuratively born from uh, stone and, and sculpted and molded by it. So there's one shot that is literally him in fetal position in what appears to be a stone womb. And if you look closely, there's actually almost like a, you know, a birth canal sort of, uh, at his feet. That's what I was going for, is, is sort of coming out of this and coming into life in a very profound way that is influenced by the surrounding. Alex also talked about the physicality of climbing in that video. Funny, I, I always tell beginning climbers, climbing is all about your legs, it's all about pushing up and using good technique and placing your feet well. But I think that my arms and my hands are more identified with the actual act of climbing. Because at a certain level, you just have to be able to hold onto the wall, and you know you wind up with, with sort of unique looking hands. And then there's a ton of core because the engagement between your feet and your arms is all your core. And so, really, climbing is your entire body. How do you think about photographing a climber's body specifically? Well, first and foremost, it's important to know what kind of tension climbing requires. So that's that's actually where I approached it from. I know as a climber uh, when my body is at its most tense and what muscle groups I'm engaging to stay on the wall. And so using that knowledge, I sort of, I use that as a backdrop. And that's where, you know, there's there's certain positions like in the, the, the cover shot where he's doing what's called a chimney. I knew that if we had him, you know, pushing as hard as he could oppositionally against two separate walls, that's going to engage as many muscles as possible, really, uh, in any climbing position. 
and and then there was a the, another image where he's he's I'm shooting him from behind and he's doing what's called a flag with his foot and what that does is it creates a lot of tension in the upper back he's got to pull really hard sort of almost against himself so doing the, you know knowing those positions is what allows me to sort of uh, photographically celebrate the musculature and the structure of his figure in order to tell the story of what a climber's body becomes over, you know, after repeated stimuli. You also have this really powerful photo of just Alex's hand and it's really, it's vascular and it really shows how much it takes to rock climb. How did you conceive of that image? It's funny, that image was, it was the last one we shot. Um, and I was struggling with it all day because I, I feel like they're, you know, hands and arms, like Alex says, it becomes about your hands and arms, but I really tried hard to avoid standard cliches. Um, and so I was like, gosh, I just don't want to shoot just his hands, you know, I want to do something different. But ultimately that ended up being one of the, the more successful images because it really does show uh really how strong he is and, and, and sort of how that arm has evolved. I mean, Alex's hands and his arms are just so strong. And it's not just, it's not just the big muscles. In fact, m- more often it's the little muscles. It's all the sort of the small muscles that make all that musculature come together and work the way it does. And so, I mean, we had always had that idea. We want to celebrate his arms and hands. How to do that, you know, I was trying to escape cliches. I was trying to escape sort of something boring. And ultimately, it was a, it was a lesson that, you know, I have to learn again and again and again as a photographer, as an artist, as a human, that oftentimes the simplest solution is the most elegant and it's the best. But to do the simplest solution, to execute that, uh, requires a certain amount of discipline and a degree of letting go of creative ownership and, and, and allowing it to simply be what it is without having to put your, you know, your name all over it, so to speak. You're listening to Colorado Matters. We're speaking with Corey Richards of Boulder. He photographed climber Alex Honnold for ESPN's Body Issue. Climbing is also such a mental sport. How did you think about conveying that through photographs? Well, it's funny, you know, communicating the mental aspect in a still photograph is really, really hard. I think one of the ways that, you know, I wanted to do that or I tried to do that was with just a very straight frontal portrait. And he's just sitting there sort of looking down and into the camera. There's a fortitude that is embodied in Alex that he can't avoid, even in any sort of most relaxed gaze. He owns this mental fortitude. And and when you ask him to distill and sort of be present with you and, and look into the camera in that way, um, that becomes, I think, even more present. What's interesting, though, is in that same photograph, there's an element of softness. There's an element of vulnerability there. There's still a child, sort of like a childlike nature to, to Alex himself. So it's an interesting balance. And Corey, you're a mountaineer yourself and a climber. You've climbed Everest several times. How does that inform your photography? You know, I don't know. I think um, the the act of climbing mountains, big mountains, is is a constant reminder of our. I don't want to say frailty, but but you know our fragile, the fragile nature of being human. And so, in photography, I always want to be mindful 
and honest with the fact that, you know, hubris is oftentimes our own worst enemy and can actually block us from the broader and, and I think better experiences of, of humanity. So if it informs it in any way, what I really want to do, what I try to do is get down to the nature of what it means to be human. And oftentimes that means celebrating our fallibility. And so climbing to me has been this constant lesson and this constant reminder that we're here for a short time and we should live as best we can uh, in that short window, whatever that means to us. And so, you know, I know that's kind of a broad, highbrow answer, and I don't mean it to be <laughs> so existential, but that's really what I've drawn and from my experiences, and that's what I try to inject in my photography is, is just the experience of being human is very special, and we should respect it. And even those concepts are what you take to this project. Yeah, yeah. I try anyway. This is the last print edition of The Body Issue. As a photographer, how do you feel about the future of this project moving entirely online? Well, I mean, that, that raises bigger questions about how we feel about everything moving online in general. I think that there will always be a place for print, and I think that there will be, there's something nice about print. There's something nice about the way it smells and feels, the texture of it in your hands. Uh, there's something calming and comforting about that, the way you can settle into an image in a magazine or a book and sit with it in a way that you don't really do with a screen. So there's a piece of me that is, you know, a little heartbroken about that. But at the same time, you know, the digital space gives us more opportunity to explore and, and, and really create more in-depth content that people can get into. You know, that's video, that's audio, that's, that's interactive, um, you know, that's looking at VR and, and AR. I mean, there's so much that can happen with this. And as it moves to be a completely digital experience, I'm, I'm curious to see how that expands the conversation around body, what body is, what body does, and what body can be for us. And, and hopefully that will sort of expand the conversation globally around you know, what it means to be an athlete, but, but also just what it means to have a body, live in it, and, and celebrate that. And I suppose one of the ways that it's possible to explore that is through like the video that accompanied the photos this year. And I want to play one more moment from that where Alex talks about what he took away from the project. I think that the message that I take from the, the body issue is just how interesting it is that everybody's body morphs to whatever they need it to do. You know how the human form is so malleable to, to the stimulus you apply to it. You know, like if you need it to do one thing, it'll do that thing if, if you train it hard enough. ESPN captioned this entire project with everybody has a story. Is that something that you subscribe to? Yeah, absolutely. Everybody has a story, but everybody has a story too. Uh, and there's a, you know, and, and that, that is a, a, again, a much broader topic to, to talk about. Our bodies are incredible in the way that they store experience, um, how that manifests later in life and, you know, things like trauma, uh, things like childhood stimulus, things, all of these things our bodies store them. So every body that you see walking around, every functioning body that moves around you has its own story. It has a reason that it looks the way it does, the way it moves the way it does, the way it smells the way it does. Like we are tied to these stories. And it's really important to understand that in order to disarm judgment that comes around bodies in general and body shaming. Um, Body shaming is one of the most damaging things that we do as a society. And in some regards, I think people, they say, well, you're celebrating these great athletes. Isn't that in and of itself its own 
form of saying, you know, you need to look like this. And I would say exactly the opposite. What we're trying to do is celebrate the achievement and the accomplishment that these people have done and also open up the conversation around body itself. What value do you see in the body issue? Well, I'll be really honest with you. I have, as an athlete, you know, I have, I have body issues, body image issues. I think we all do. I think oftentimes we look in the mirror and no matter what our physique or form is, we, we wish for things to be different. We want it to be quote unquote better. Um, and I, I, what I see in the, the value that I pull from it is showing how we are all so different and yet how we are also similar. Different sports and different activities obviously create different kinds of bodies, but the body, that is the constant in all of it. And what I hope for this is that it, one, inspires people to go out and be active and engage their body and use this incredible gift that we have uh, to achieve whatever it is that they want to achieve, to treat their bodies well. But also I would hope that it would sort of encourage us to value our bodies as they are, to see them as beautiful, to see them as complete in the way they are, where they are, when they're there. And as somebody who myself has struggled with body image issues, I think it's really, really valuable to take off our clothes and simply look at ourselves in a real honest light and accept that and, and start to see that we are inherently beautiful just as we are, and that we don't need to be more to be better. Corey, thank you so much for having this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It's an important conversation to have, and and I'm happy to be a, a part of it, however small. Corey Richards of Boulder photographed climber Alex Honnold for ESPN's Body Issue. It's the last print issue of ESPN the magazine, which has now moved entirely online. He's known as the Jackie Robinson of classical music. During segregation, he played bass in what became the Colorado Symphony Orchestra. Charlie Burrell paved the way for other African-American musicians. I'll never forget, I was 12 years old, and I was playing with the set called the um, Crystal Radio, and I heard something, and it had to be the San Francisco Symphony playing Tchaikovsky. Fourth Symphony, and conducted by Pierre Montour. And at that moment, I fell in love with it. I said, that's what I want to do. I want to play with that, that band. I didn't know it was an orchestra, that band. The very sound of the bass just touching it was my thrill. They used to look at me and laugh and say, what are you doing playing the white man's music? You'll never be accepted, so why even bother? I used to talk to my mother about that, and she said, don't let that bother you. Do whatever you want to do, but do it with class and dignity. That audio courtesy of the San Francisco Orchestra. The Colorado Symphony performs Tchaikovsky's Fourth Symphony Friday to celebrate Charlie Burrell's 99th birthday. I spoke with Burrell about his legacy while he was working on his autobiography back in 2006. When you were young, you called your bass your Linus Blanket, uh, which I, I guess implies it was always with you. Uh, every step of the way from the time I was 12. How did you first find the bass? I didn't find the bass. The bass found me. Uh, I think one Friday afternoon in uh, junior high school, 
the teacher came in, the music teacher came in the room, and we were bored to tears, obviously, about 3 o'clock. You know what that is on Friday? My, you know. And uh, he said, well, I'll tell you what, we have uh, an opening, and uh, he said, band, okay. And he says, we, was anyone like would like to play an instrument, you know, and I didn't know anything. Yeah, I raised my hand. So he took me in the band room, and uh, he looked in the corner, and there was a big aluminum brown bass. And he said, well, Charlie, that's all we have. And I said, I'll take it. I grabbed it, and I haven't looked back. And that was me about then, about four foot ten. You're four foot ten. Did that make the bass taller than you were? Oh, much taller. I used to have to stand on a Coca-Cola box to, to, to get to the bass. When you finally moved from Detroit to Denver, mm-hmm. you joined what was then the Denver Symphony Orchestra, mm-hmm. and you were one of the first <clears throat> black members. Yes. What was the reception you got? I'll put it this way. It was rather cool, but uh, in a gentlemanly fashion and lady fashion, you know, they accepted me only because of the fact that the conductor, whose name was Saul Caston, was an upright, honest man, and he would allow nothing short of people treating me like people. I never socialized with anyone in the orchestra. That was impossible because of the fact that they had their lives, which were uh, outside uh, Anglo, and I had mine, which is outside in those days, which was uh, black. And so consequently, and when I left the hall, that was it. You probably don't know how the reception that you get when a person is not that too enthused about meeting you. They would say, oh, how'd you do? You know, how are you? I wonder if that was more or less frustrating than just overt racism. I mean, it's one thing to get a, a, a cold, icy reception. And it's another thing for people to be blunt and say, this is how I feel about you. No, that didn't bother me at all. My, mom, my mother had prepared me for that. Okay, She had prepared me thoroughly for that. <laughs> and so consequently, I had no emotions. I mean, it didn't matter to me. All I wanted to do was play my bass. And I was lucky in the fact that the whole bass section was in my corner. So that was my big plus because all of them in the bass section were my good friends. Can you tell me the story of what happened when the Denver Symphony visited Roswell, New Mexico? Denver Symphony was on tour and uh, got to Roswell, New Mexico, and we got to the front of the hotel. And the whole orchestra was, um, got up there and signed their names and so forth. And when I got up at the counter, she said, I'm sorry, but you can't stay here. She said, you have to stay back in the kitchen. And I never forget uh, the lady who was in charge then, the big lady, uh, Miss Helen Black. And she jumped up and said, no. She says, everyone pack up. We're leaving. We don't stay. And I had to calm her down, not bragging, but I said, uh, Helen, darling. Um, and Helen, Helen was with the symphony. With the symphony, okay. yeah. She was the, uh, the boss, the administrator, everything. You know. If it hadn't been for Helen, there wouldn't have been a symphony. Anyhow, uh, she... I did have managed to calm her down, saying, no, this is not the way to handle it. Uh, the way we handle it is that you go ahead and we'll, we'll work on that when I get back to Denver. You know, I says, but I'll just go on back to Denver and wait for her to get back. And it was a blessing because they had two more weeks of tour. And I figured out that if I got back to Denver, I could go back to work, my jazz job. And this was like on, uh, on, on Monday. So I got back in time to start playing my jazz job on Tuesday. <laughs> and plus the fact that I got a two-week uh, paycheck from the symphony because, you know, they didn't want to hurt my poor feelings, and that was nice. 
pretty high on the hog financially for the first time I think in my entire life. But but when the symphony played Roswell that mm. night, they mm. were they were short a bass player. Oh yes, yes, so, I was not there. You have worked a stunning variety of jobs over the years, other than music. And for our listeners, here's a, a partial list: plumber, auto worker, ice man, bedpan specialist. And this continued after you landed the job in Denver. One year was your job to rub oil on every seat in Red Rock's amphitheater. Why were you working all those jobs? Well, because I had four children to take care of. And uh, two, um, one, one ex-wife and one present wife. And it was not the easiest thing in the world. And jobs were pretty scarce. And in those times, I was only making $65 a week with the symphony. I wonder how all your experience in jazz informed your classical performing. Oh, because I kept happy. I was playing jazz four, five, six nights a week. Because in those days, they only had uh, one or two concerts in Denver. And uh, one concert was on uh, one night when we played. And I'd finish the concert at 9.30 and be on the job with the Arrows Trio at 10 o'clock. Are you implying that you weren't happy playing the classical? Oh, no, no. I was profoundly happy. But what kept me sane was the fact of playing good jazz with people who had no hang-ups, okay? Symphony musicians were a little strange, and still are. They have, <laughs> they have this thing about them, you know, about looking down their nose at everyone else that plays another instrument. And uh, that was uh, the exposure I had with them. But with the jazz, it was not like that. You left the Denver Symphony in 1999. <clears throat> what are you doing in retirement? Every day is Christmas. Every day, I practice a half an hour every morning, and I had for quite a long time played um, little jazz jobs here and there. And um, I just, well, I found myself uh, being hooked with gardening. Gardening? Yes, and I loved it. Thanks very much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs> Charlie Burrell speaking with me in 2006. On Friday, he turns 99, and the CSO celebrates with a special concert. As to his love of jazz, here's Burrell on bass in I've Got My Fingers Crossed. Happy birthday, Charlie. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.